Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you're listening to New Books and Film, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Annie Burke, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Caitlin Benson Allett, professor of English and Film at Georgetown University. The Stuff of Spectatorship Material Cultures of Film and Television came out from the University of California Press in April of this year. In it, Dr. Benson Allett argues that, and I'm quoting her, how we read and live with the objects associated with film and television are instrumental to our understanding of them. These objects range from branded apparel to evocatively worn VHS tapes to themed cocktails at your friendly neighborhood multiplex. Made of light and later sound, she writes, the film experience cannot be touched, but that does not mean it is immaterial. What does it look like to make material culture a frame for understanding movies and television, as well as a shot in the arm to establish methods of media analysis that include close reading, spectatorship theory, and reception history? Let's ask her. Hi, Caitlin. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me here, Annie. No, thank you. Um, Let's just start. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a scholar of film and television. Great. All right. Um, So as you mentioned, uh, I'm a professor in English and film and media studies at Georgetown. Um, I was very lucky to do my PhD at uh, Cornell, which had um, a really kind of hands-off, find-your-own-critical-approach critical project um, that it set up for its doctoral students, particularly in the English department. Um, I was also extremely lucky that uh, Gore Verbinski's film, The Ring, came out within um, a month or two of me starting graduate school. And I just sort of fell down the rabbit hole of an obsession with that film and its depiction of videotapes. Um, And I got really interested in why film and media studies hadn't paid so much attention to VHS and to video-enabled spectatorship uh, from the laser disc through um, online peer-to-peer file sharing or streaming. And that was sort of the beginning the beginning of the end, shall we say, um, for my obsession with material culture and more broadly, the sort of bad objects of film and media studies. What do we veer away from talking about? And eventually um, that brought me to a subsequent project on the history of remote control devices and most recently to the stuff of spectatorship, where in a way I was trying to sort of find the limit cases, um, objects that profoundly inform how we understand film and television historically, personally, socially, but that aren't given credit for the impact that they have on us um, or have had on, uh, on film and television culture historically. Awesome. Well, you sort of uh, anticipated a little bit my next question, which is this is your third book, Caitlin. Uh, this stuff of spectatorship just came out, but your first was in 2013, which I think you know, Killer Tapes and Shattered Screens, which tells, you know, your your mention of the ring. It's a little bit of a tell there. And then as you as you just said, uh, the book Remote Control in 2015, which is part of Bloomsbur- Bloomsbury's Object Lessons series. Uh, I want to talk about the origin and structure of this book. How did this particular project come to be? Um, And apart from your focus on U.S. media from 1975 to the present, which is what you delimited in the introduction, how did you choose what to include and what to exclude from that? Great. That's a great question. So the book um, got started when um, my mentor, Shelley Stamp, uh, gave me an invitation to guest edit a special issue of Feminist Media Histories, um, which is now being edited by Jennifer Bean. And I decided to do it on materialisms, plural. Um, This was a moment when 
new materialisms such as thing theory, speculative realism, object-oriented ontology um, were very hot in the humanities broadly construed. Um, but I was really frustrated by what was then um, from, in my opinion, a sort of um, intentional apoliticism in these approaches to material culture. They were so invested in taking the materiality of objects seriously and on their own terms that they weren't really thinking about how objects affected the social, the, the political significance that they could carry. Um, around that time, I also had um, the great fortune of watching what turned out to be a bootleg DVD of Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which was a film I'd heard about my entire life, but never been able to see. And so I got really interested for my article in this special issue on what happened to Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Why did it fall out of circulation? And then when I finally was sort of able to answer that question to my satisfaction. So what? What does it mean that um, this once iconic feminist film is decaying all around us, right? Are we, what VHS and Laserdisc copies we have are quickly going to disintegrate beyond our ability to rip new digital uh, files from them. So what does it mean to lose film history. That was the, the first chapter um, that I wrote. And then I sort of, sort of started thinking about how film and television are really experienced hand in hand, that they're inextricable in our current cultural moment. And so I wanted to think about television and material culture as well. And that led me to um, some of the more obviously paired chapters in the book, such as um, the chapter that precedes Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which is on the remediation of television, classic or legacy television series, to various video platforms, and how the packaging of the series, be that literal and material, when we're talking about VHS or DVD box sets, or discursive on um, streaming websites, how that changes our access to, to television history and what we think counts as television history. Um, and then I got into, I think, what, what uh, many readers consider the sort of funner chapters of the book on uh, the impact of alcohol sales in movie theaters or cannabis consumption and uh, cannabis culture on contemporary television. Well, we're going to get to that, Caitlin. I think those are very fun chapters, but in my experience of it, they are, they feel sort of like um, if I was, your book is, is sort of an academic page turner and it feels like that upbeat moment right before like this the sinking, um, I don't know, act of, of violence and despair. So sort of in those fun chapters, I think is really where the book veers towards sort of the dark heart of white supremacy and material culture. We're going to get there, but um all of that, all of that political sort of critique is coming through in your readings. Uh, and so I want to talk about how you read before we talk about what you read, which is appropriate because that really is sort of what your book is about, how we, how we read, impacting and sort of changing the meaning of what we read. So in this study of material media stud culture, you introduce Eve Sedgwick's terms paranoid reading and reparative reading, and you offer a third way, one of sitting with. Uh, so before we talk about the case studies, can you explain sort of what the differences are between paranoid reparative reading practices and then this new term that you've innovated? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So um, Eve Cedric is one of the canonical figures of um, American queer theory. And um, one of her most profoundly impactful essays is called Parrot. Paranoid and Reparative Reading, or You're So Paranoid, You Probably Think This Essay Is About You, which is one of the, the great academic titles of all time, in my opinion. Um, and she was trying to diagnose a particular mindset that she noticed happening in literary criticism at the end of the 20th century, where she felt like um, <clears throat> scholars had become so invested in 
reading against the grain and looking for the hidden truths, right? Or the kind of destructive um, or malfunctioning ideologies baked into a text that, um, that they kind of set themselves up for a trap, right? Because all paranoid reading can really do is confirm suspicions, right? That's what, that's what paranoia um, is. And so Cedric wanted to offer, um, I guess, what we would now call the first post-critical reading strategy. She sort of inaugurated a movement here, um, which she called reparative reading. And reparative reading, instead of looking for confirmation of um, the negative, right, of, of these kind of destructive um, ideologies in a text, um, the reparative reading is a way of loving and in loving the object, finding hope and energy for a better world. Um, so her example coming from queer histories is how um, a kind of queer attachment to, say, a book or a media object um, can give us um, hope and energy to thrive in a heterocentric and homophobic world and to dream and build new queer futures. And this is great. And these are both strategies that I really dive into um, when embracing looking for Mr. Goodbar, including my decaying um, VHS copy of it. But ultimately, I realized that both of these reading strategies are more about the scholar than they are about the text. I call this the savior complex, right? That like, whether I'm trying to figure out what happened that made Paramount stop releasing new editions, digital editions of Looking for Mr. Goodbar, or I'm in my reparative reading mode and I'm just trying to show you how Looking for Mr. Goodbar is so much more complex and so much more of a cogent critique than it was ever given credit for. In either of those scenarios, it's really about me, right? It's about me as the scholar bolstering my own ego in the psychoanalytic sense, right? Making myself feel stronger and affirming my vitality through reading. And it doesn't do jack for looking for Mr. Goodbar, right? Looking for Mr. Goodbar as a film is still um, disappearing into cultural obsolescence. My students these days have never even heard of it. And my actual copies are still degrading on the shelf. In fact, they're degrading faster the more I watch them. So I wanted to develop this concept of sitting with as a way of articulating what it means to just embrace transience, the transience of the VHS tape, the transience of the scholar, that we are all subject to entropy and decay. We will all become obsolete in our time. And there's there's no way to investigate or to love a media object back to life. That's so fascinating. And it's so uh, personal, I think, that kind of personal revelation that you can have with a media object, even or the idea of a media object or the media object that can't be retrieved. My own personal story of looking for Mr. Goodbar is I'd never seen the movie, but I read the book right before college started. And at like my first college party, someone said like, what have you read this summer? And I said, looking for Mr. Goodbar. And she said, oh, I don't read trash like that. <gasps> I know. That's how you get a PhD in American studies, number one. <laughs> number two, it scared me off from watching a movie that it turns out I wouldn't be able to find. Um, so now that we're getting now that we're getting personal, Caitlin, I want to talk about uh, the sort of autobiographical aspects of the book, which are uh, really fascinating. You're a character in your book, and you sort of start uh, with this discussion of that your family was a TV week household as opposed to a TV guide household, which is sort of socioeconomic marker. Uh, TV Week came in newspapers and was free and more regional and TV Guide is very glossy and comparatively expensive. Um, and you talk about the trips you take to screenings, to um, cruises, to your own couch because the staycation industry is really booming right now. Um, and so you put yourself sort of, 
don't want to say in the hot seat, but you are the model spectator in many of your case studies. How did that feel to write? Was that new for you or is that sort of an extension of the work that you've done in in this field? I would describe it as something that I um, have to be dragged kicking and screaming into. Um, I have so much respect for scholars like Emily Hasty, who for years wrote the Vulnerable Spectator column for Film Quarterly, which was about this sort of um, auto-ethnographic approach to film theory. Um, I love it. I, I feel like it needs to be strongly motivated Right. I think we all can think of examples of uh, first person criticism where you're like, why are you here? (laughs) Um, I'm interested in in the media text. What does a kind of first person encounter with the author add to this history beyond, say, serving the author's own ego. So I bring a lot of skepticism to my first-person writing. Um, But I also discovered in workshopping this book with friends and colleagues that it felt like a cheat to them for me to write, say, about um, cannabis culture and inebriated poetics on contemporary television and not to talk about my own experience watching Atlanta or high maintenance high on my couch. (laughs) So, um, so I, as a character emerged more and more as I was drafting the book. And I suppose in a way, in order to kind of, um, ground these encounters of, reception and material culture to to provide kind of mm, vignettes um, of the way in which, whether it was cannabis or an international Turner Classic Movies cruise or um, me and my decaying video cassettes, how the material object impacted one particular spectator at one particular moment in time. Wow. I think I really enjoyed it. And I think it it made sense for me in terms of particularly what we just said about sitting with like the writer can't ask the reader to sit with media without demonstrating that she's doing the same thing or else they're sort of asking you sit with, I will sit back. Um, So I think uh, from there, I think we can start to talk about sort of the meat of the book. One of my favorite things about it is how clearly but complexly the chapters are connected to each other which is not something I can completely convey in this conversation. So I'm going to oversimplify when I group them a little bit. Uh, but to anyone listening, you should read the book. It's really skillfully done. There are sort of echoes and resonances through chapters that we might not be able to access right now. Um, but your first two chapters sort of delve into video technology's relationship to personal memory and to cultural history. Uh, as you mentioned uh, you use the 1977 series premiere of Battlestar Galactica to lay out, the primary claim of your book, or one of them, which is that how you watch matters, not just what you watch, particularly in debunking the notion that there is an original singular text to be watched in the first place. By that, you look at the different platforms on which one can or is now unable to watch um, the pilot of Battlestar. Uh, can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So it's this all kind of begins um, from me being a rather obsessive Jimmy Carter fan. Um, <laughs> My second dog is actually named Jimmy Carter. So yeah, I'm not joking. Um, And I read this this little aside in some Battlestar Galactica blog that um, in the Eastern broadcast feed, the premiere of the original Battlestar Galactica was interrupted by the signing of the Camp David Peace Accords which I got a great chuckle out of because as anyone who's watched Battlestar Galactica knows, it's a failure of diplomacy that sets the entire plot in motion. So I was like, gosh, I really want to see that. And, you know, that's really funny that I've been, you know, obsessed with Carter and a fan of uh, BSG for years and I never knew this. And then I couldn't find them. And eventually I, I had a graduate research assistant also trying to help me find one off-the-air recording of Battlestar Galactica from its premiere that would have this uh, news break interruption. 
we couldn't do it. None of the um, fan communities that we tapped um, still had viable copies. And so the project kind of became about thinking through how that cultural intersection got lost in the process of remediation. And we tend to think of remediation as being an intratextual device, right? Like I am listening to Wuthering Heights as an audiobook instead of reading it. And that's a remediation of Wuthering Heights. But I think that remediation is also a process um, that comes alive in the packaging. So if you buy uh, a VHS copy of the Battlestar Galactica pilot, um, which is just called Battlestar Galactica when you buy it, the copy on the backside of the box presents Battlestar Galactica as if it were a movie. In fact, as if it were a sort of nonce sequel to Star Wars and completely obscures the fact that it was ever a television series. So I wanted to think about like, gosh, already this political history with Carter got lost. Well, what are we being taught to value in video packaging? And I worked through um, just about all of the remediations of Battlestar Galactica. I don't even want to tell you how many times I rewatched the pilot <laughs> in order to think about this historical reframing. And there was there was sort of, a, I guess, to me, an inside joke in making this the first chapter of the stuff of spectatorship, because in the first chapter of Killer's Chapes and Shattered Screens, I worked through um, all six of George Romero's zombie films in chronological order to show how Romero's jump from one distribution platform to another changed the way in which he films zombie attacks. Um, so there's a kind of maybe me and my parents <laughs> will appreciate that joke. Well, thank you. Um, so as you mentioned, you were not able to find this sort of apocryphal off-the-air recording of uh, Battlestar, but you do have the decaying VHS of Looking for Mr. Goodbar, and you talk about it in such lyrical terms, particularly the final scene of sort of the flashing face and all of the competing meanings of uh, that tragic death, um, can ha what it can signify, which I won't recount here because people can just read it. But I do want to talk about uh, one of the lines you have here, which is, what can a critic do when confronted with the disappearance of a beloved text? And that sort of speaks to your discussion of sitting with and sort of the, um, what exactly did you say? I did write it down. Um, the kind of um, power and beauty of like accepting media's mortality. But I think there's a kind of paradox here I thought we could talk about, which is, there's nothing a critic can do when confronted with the disappearance. But then you also talk about the re recuperation of a peer classic like cruising and how some, maybe some critics or some spheres of criticism are able to sort of slow the disappearance or to bring critical attention. Um, can we talk about that kind of conflict, which is that we can't save media and yet sort of that's Martin Scorsese's weekend project, basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And I would also say, you know, and I mentioned this in the chapter too, that there are whole fields of film and media studies that have spent decades, right? Amazing scholars have been thinking about um, the disappearing or the disappeared media object. And I'm thinking here, like, particularly of um, feminist film historians who have worked on recuperating um, women's film, particularly from uh, early cinema and the silent period, um, or, you know, like Alison Field's amazing work on um, recuperating lost histories of African-American film, such as um, the wonderful work that she did uh, with um, helping to restore and to provide history on the recently rediscovered short film, um, Something Wonderful Negro Kiss. So I was kind of more interested, as opposed to um, these sort of early film historians that are trying to write histories that were never valued as they ought to have been in the time. I wanted to think about the commercial economy of film history. Looking for Mr. Goodbar isn't disappearing because a hundred odd years ago, nobody thought it was worth saving. 
It's disappearing because Paramount doesn't see um, a sufficient profit margin in re-releasing it. And I think that that distinction is especially important when we consider how film history is taught or how film history is programmed, be that for Turner Classic Movies or a streaming service or your local rep house, right? They can only show what has been restored and transferred to the platforms that they can work with. And that's commercial, right? I can't teach looking for Mr. Goodbar because Georgetown can't buy it because there are no um, legally sanctioned copies available for sale. And so that's really where kind of the um, contradiction with cruising um, came into play because that film was restored um, and received a a really important critical reappreciation. I guess that was, gosh, almost 20 years ago now um, when it was made available on DVD, when it was restored and and re-offered to the public with additional supplemental material. So I really wanted to point out that, gosh, it's not just early film history that's disappearing and that we have to to learn how to appreciate the loss of or live with the loss of. It's also the contemporary and there are important political ramifications of that. Absolutely. Something else I, I sort of was intrigued by in the chapter was this mention that even Diane Keaton seems to have written looking for Mr. Goodbar out of her memoir, out of her biography, I mean, besides the question of like, why would you, why would you double down on the Woody Allen aspect of your life right now? Um, I think the other piece of it is that I, it's almost as though looking for good bar is not good for her brand, her commercial economy, her like what she, her sort of um, Nancy Myers trajectory that followed. Um, because you know, the star is also a kind of a commercial property or a brand. And the next two chapters of your book really look at sort of brand and lifestyle as a material culture object. See what I did there? That's my transition. Um, thanks. So first, let's talk about Turner Classic Movies. The, the subheading of the chapter is how TCM made a lifestyle of classic film. Uh, so I'll just ask, how did TCM make a lifestyle out of classic film despite Uh, the important gaps in their legal and licensing rights. Uh, And sort of bonus question, why do I feel so embarrassed as a TCM fan and a movie scholar that I didn't catch on before that all of this Let's Movie stuff was just a sort of an invasive way to talk about that they can't actually uh, make money from the intellectual properties of these movies that I I say I love. (laughs) Well, don't be embarrassed. (laughs) I'm not that embarrassed, but it is sort of... uh, the lifestyle branding, it's pretty slick. It, it does feel uh, very sophisticated, uh, but it is, as you as you call it, a kind of empty signifier for some sort of retro glamour past. Yes. And I think that, so I was really interested in the popularity of Turner Classic Movies stuff among film scholars, right? You are not alone in this. Um, that you'll, If you go to the Society for Cinema and Media Studies conference, assuming like it starts happening in person again as planned, um, you'll see people rolling around in their Turner Classic Movies t-shirt with their Turner Classic Movies mugs. And I was like, gosh, we don't like usually rep brands like that. Like that's not something academics do. Why are we like repping this network. No one is walking around in an HGTV t-shirt. And so um, so I started thinking about all that TCM stuff and was very lucky um, that the TCM executive branch was really willing to talk with me. I flew down to Atlanta. Um, they were so welcoming and um, were really happy to, to show me some of their decks and teach me about their approach to the classic film lifestyle. And they were really positive about that, right? About the idea that that I was writing about them as a lifestyle brand. I guess in the parlance of our time, it was like they felt very seen when um, I offered this reading. And um, Jennifer Dorian, their then general manager, offered me a really helpful way of understanding what a brand is. And she said that a brand is to own the concept of something in the mind. 
And since Turner Classic Movies does not own and, and in its current corporate structure cannot own the rights to the films that it shows, it owns the concept of classic cinema in the mind. And the way they monetize that is through stuff and consumer experiences from the TCM Wine Club, um, of which I was a temporary um, member, to their international uh, travel experiences. I didn't quite have the funds to go on their uh, Italian voyage, but maybe next time. Well, I have to say, um, I always kind of wanted to go on that cruise, but then I there was something about the the image of someone explaining film noir to me while I drink wine in a hot tub that really just <laughs> killed killed the dream. Um, but uh, I think to own a concept of something in the mind is is really is very telling about uh, who is attracted to TCM and what they're looking for, which I recall. Jennifer Dorian pointing out is not necessarily the best wine, but the wine that has some sort of peripheral branding or attachment to the Marx Brothers or to sort of a Hollywood, Hollywood legacy representation. Um, but it's really it's kind of surprising uh, and fresh the way that just as your book is entering into what you call those fun chapters about TCM and uh, drinking at the movies, it's also the point where we start to see like the darkest aspects of material culture uh, sort of laying the groundwork for later chapters about violence uh, and sort of dehumanized film spectatorship. Um, So can you say a little bit about how drinking at the cinema and this can, you know, as, as you mentioned, a much longer history than people normally think of from early cinema's tavern culture to sort of um, themed drinks at Ace, AMC dine-in experience to the hip urban cine bistro, uh, how all of these sort of speak to the compulsory whiteness embedded in moviegoing. Absolutely. So one of the things that was really important and motivating to me in the stuff of spectatorship and why I say it's about material media cultures is that anthropologists really understand material culture as always political, right? That the objects that we surround ourselves with um, are reflections of our politics and um, are also conditioning our politics. And um, so in the case of drinking in the theater, I mean, I think most people would already agree that um, there is a lot of class politics and racial politics baked into the ways that Americans perceive drinking and perceive alcohol culture. And the chapter looks at three different models of how alcohol has been integrated into the theatrical experience in the 21st century um, from a kind of neo-rep house model like the uh, Alamo Draft House that's based on kind of uh, subcultural capital to um, micro cinemas um, that are using alcohol again to create cultural capital, but also to create a sense of the local um, to the the corporate megaplexes um, such as AMC or Regal and their um, dine-in options. Uh, AMC is sort of um, the the case study because they're a publicly traded company. And so all of their investor reports are available online where they quite gleefully um, and happily explain that they are integrating alcohol sales in order not just to bolster their profit margin, but particularly to target um, Latinx audiences, or they uh, the word that they use there is Hispanic audiences, um, because they their market research indicates to them that Hispanic audiences spend more on food and drink in the movie theaters than other audiences. And so I, that was really an opportunity for me to start talking most directly at this point in the book, um, because it really comes out in the last chapter, about how race and American attitudes about race are baked into the material media cultures of film and television. Thank you. Um, So the last two chapters of your book sort of elaborate on that and and take them to sort of 
the horrible, inevitable sort of conclusion of that of that logic. Um, first, through uh, a look at the material harm around mater- uh, media representation with the inebriated poetics of American television. So uh, you start with sort of the war on drugs era 90s programming, uh, which I did grow up on the Friday, you know, this is your brain on drugs kind of thing, the special, special, you know, episodes where all the teen stars were actually high while they filmed them. Um, and honestly, some of the stuff, this is one of the trippiest parts of your book. Some of those PSAs sound like they were written by people who were high out of their minds. <laughs> like, what if your dolls came alive and told you not to take drugs? Uh, more like stop taking drugs. Absolutely wacky stuff. Uh, funny, but um, this is where sort of your book sort of takes a turn because while the we, you know, might now mock the kind of earnest PSA culture of the war on drugs, uh, it took, it did irreparable harm to communities of color in the United States while networks came out of the struggle without a mark and were able to sort of pivot uh, as uh, cannabis usage became increasingly common among white middle-class communities the very same people that they were hoping to reach with their advertisement. So can you talk about that historical and cultural shift away from anti-drug programming and towards um, a whitewashed sort of strain, that's a bad pun, of cannabinoid television um, and this idea of the form and style being influenced by Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things I really wanted to unpack in this chapter is what I'm calling television's white gaze, and others have used this phrase as well. And um, by that, I don't mean to exclude audiences of color or um, showrunners and other creatives of color. But what I'm trying to say is that um, historically, U.S. television has addressed itself to a white spectator and to white culture. And um, that's particularly evident in the examples uh, that you were giving, right? During the kind of PSAs and very special episodes of the 80s and 90s, um, when television producers were incredibly eager to pile on to Nixon and Reagan and then Clinton and Bush's war on drugs. And then there was this strange, hard pivot in the late 90s, where first we started seeing all of those pharmaceutical ads, right? Those vague and annoying um, pharmaceutical ads, which uh, for certain um, categories of daytime television make up the predominant advertising income. And also um, shows like Weeds and then later Breaking Bad or Snowfall that were about drug culture. But I also saw something simultaneously happening in shows that didn't even purport to be about drugs or to show drug use, which is, and this is where I think we're getting to your point about form and content, that they were enabling or hailing an inebriated spectator. And the tipping point for me uh, was watching Jersey Shore. And while uh, while I was watching Jersey Shore high on my couch, and this comes up in the book, um, there was one of those ad take double ad break double takes. You get a scene, two minutes of commercials, and then the exact same scene again. And I had always wondered, like, oh, why do shows do this? Why do reality producers think we're so dumb that like we need a scene repeated for us two minutes later? But um, after a little bit of cannabis, I was like, oh my god. Thank you. This is so helpful. (laughs) I completely forgot what they were up to. Yes. Okay. I'm back. And then I was like, right. Why would anybody assume that the viewers of Jersey Shore were in their right minds? It's like, it's not aimed for that demographic. And so I started thinking about how other programs were organized around hailing, embracing, supporting an inebriated spectator, and how some of them do that in really culturally regressive ways that affirm the white gaze. And um, Breaking Bad is sort of, is very much my bad object in this chapter. I'll just tell you, I cannot freaking stand that show. Um, But 
I also found shows that were using these inebriated poetics, these hailings of a inebriated spectator or helping a sober spectator feel inebriated, get into that mindset um, for politically progressive and anti-racist ends. And Atlanta is a great example um, of these sort of progressive inebriated poetics, right? And I I talk about how it's Afro-surrealist motifs help the show reconfigure both its depiction of cannabis, but also its engagement with the white gaze. It's not unaware of the racialized history of U.S. television. In fact, it's critiquing the racialized history of U.S. television. That's fascinating. Um, I also not a not a big fan of Breaking Bad. I feel it, it really has that kind of inebriated poetic, but a very bad trip. I always mm-hmm. think when I watch this, if I wanted to feel this way, I would be a drug dealer. Like if I wanted to feel this nervous, um, but. I want to think about how this connects to your final chapter. So the inebriated poetics of television sort of paired with the war on drugs PSAs. I would say like those earlier programs were kind of representations that did violence, that they sort of upheld this idea of a racialized super predator. And then with this turn, we have a kind of these more, retrograde and progressive representations you mentioned that either whitewash or erase the violence that the war on drugs did, or with a show like Atlanta, kind of weave it into a kind of Afro-surrealist aesthetic. But your final chapter focuses on sort of not so much the representation or of violence or how representation does violence, but violence in the proximity of representation, uh, which is to say cinema violence, uh, which you define as something that can be anything from a fist fight in the aisle, uh, an eruption of gang violence, or a mass shooting. All of those qualify. And you have a a pretty extensive chart in your appendix where you mention um, sort of the documented cases of cinema violence throughout the 20th and into the 21st century. you mentioned that the panic around cinema violence is a distinctly white panic. But at the same time, and I'm quoting you now, cinema violence is always ultimately white violence. Can you please say more about that? Absolutely. So I'm talking there about the violence of discourse and the violence of representation. Um, So in the book, I'm really focusing on um, incidents of cinema violence that inspired what I'm calling panicked reception culture. So these are cases when the media picked up the story of a violent incident at a screening or violent incidents at multiple screenings. And this became the frame through which the film was received, the way in which viewers encountered it, remembered it, talked about it beginning with uh, Walter Hill's The Warriors in 1979, um, where absolutely egregious assumptions were made about who did what to whom um, at various screenings of the film where somebody died or was otherwise assaulted. Um, The Warriors is about gang culture in New York City, despite being a sort of um, highly mannered and surrealist film. It's actually a very sympathetic and uh, well-informed depiction of 1970s gang culture in New York. But the discourse that went on around it was black versus white. Right? And it was specifically blaming Black gangs for violence at screenings where white viewers got hurt. And gang violence, which is always racially coded in the U.S. media, became the only lens through which uh, people were talking about cinema violence up until the 21st century which is not to say that people did not hurt other people at the, at other movies, right? Where gangs could not be blamed, but that those incidents such as, you know, a very sad shooting at um, Schindler's list or multiple incidents of violence at cocktail of all the like 
godforsaken 80s movies. They didn't get picked up by the media. They didn't um, have people calling for the film to be removed from theaters, as happened at when violence erupted at screenings of Boys in the Hood or Juice, i.e. films by and about Black men. This discourse really changed in the 21st century after James Egan Holmes' uh, mass shooting at The Dark Knight Rises. And I talk about how um, this idea of the lone gunman and the crazy um, and thus unpredictable uh, violence became the new way to contextualize and the new way to report on cinema violence and thus to produce panicked reception cultures. But in this case, it's always like the white guy who can't help it, right? The lone white psychopath whose violence we could never have seen coming despite all of the many mass shootings that we have suffered in this country, um, which is an absolute inverse of the way in which violence was reported on when African-American gang members were being blamed for cinema violence in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So that's why I say that cinema violence is always white violence, regardless of the individuals involved in any given incident. Thank you. Yeah. And it's um, very powerful the way you talk about sort of what is constitutes what they call a random act of violence. Um senseless when through the entire book you've been establishing that there is no randomness when it comes to the material life of media and how we are all positioned within and around it. Um, it was a very sobering way to end the book. Um, and I just want to ask you a few more things about your work before we finish for today. You, Caitlin, you just completed your term as the editor of the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies, which is the flagship journal of the discipline. Um, academics like to call this kind of work service to the discipline. So thank you for your service. Um, but I want to ask, because so many writers are practicing or aspiring editors, how you feel that your scholarly writerly work and your editorial work feed into each other to the extent that they do. Great question. So um, it has been such an honor to edit JCMS. Um, I still have 11 months left, uh, oh. so don't count me out yet. I've been but, getting emails about that. <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah. Um, the way in which I see that them, them as being closely related is um, that I think criticism needs to do more than... Um, just support and bolster the ego or the career of the critic, right? And, and that kind of goes back to the conversation that we were having about sitting with and um, the savior complex earlier. And um, so I saw taking on the editorship of JCMS, not just as a chance to do some service and get a line on my CV, um, but to actively hopefully push the ball forward in the fight for equity in academic publishing. Um, and so like, what did we not change about the journal that used to be cinema journal? Um, we changed the review process. We've changed the speed of the review process. Um, we opened up a rolling open access fifth issue on our website, jcmsjournal.org. We made new sections of the journal that weren't previously open access, open access. Um, we've been working in other ways to expand our accessibility for international authors and um, scholars from historically marginalized communities or fields in the journal. Um, so I'd say that editing JCMS, as much as I love the stuff of spectatorship, editing JCMS has been the biggest honor and the thing I'm most proud of um, in my professional life. Oh, well, that's great. You've done a tremendous job. Uh, as an independent scholar, I really appreciate all the open access resources uh, available to me. Uh, enjoy the last year left of your, your term. Uh, take your time moving out of the house. They give you a house, right? When you're the editor, I assume. <laughs> oh, of course, naturally. Yeah, it's just like a university president or something. Um, so again, thank you so much for sitting down with uh, me today. Before we go, I just want to give you the opportunity to give us a preview into any upcoming work you may be doing or any projects coming down the pike. Ooh, th 
Thanks. Okay. Um, I have an article that I'm really excited about that'll be out soon in Film Quarterly on um, what I call the ennui of the scroll. This is sort of like building off of my obsession with TV Guide and TV Week, which you mentioned earlier, and trying to think like from there, like how did we get from flipping through TV Guide to endlessly scanning through one streaming media platform menu after another looking for something to watch? What does the ennui of the scroll do for the industry? Because it's an enduring part of home media culture. Um, Beyond that, I'm really interested in escapism right now. Like so many of us who've been living through this global pandemic for nearly two years, but I've been really stunned to find that there is almost nothing written about escapism in film and media studies, like hat tip to to Richard Dyer and Jackie Stacey. But it's a shockingly under-theorized spectatorial pleasure. Um, So I'll be talking about uh, escapism at uh, SCMS in March. And um, yeah, continuing to, to think about how we use media and to take that particular, particular um, what shall we call it, um, ignored, overlooked, disgraced, spectatorial pleasure seriously. Do you have an escapist text you'd like to recommend? Ooh. Required viewing? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure if it counts as escapism or not. So this is something I'm trying to get to the bottom of, but I'm really interested in these shows of um, puberty and adolescent abjection like Big Mouth and Pen15. Um, I've been watching and re-watching them and thinking like, how does like going back to the excruciatingly <laughs> painful period in one's life, a form of temporal escape. Like, what am I getting away from in my current life by trying to relive, like, zits and first dates and, like, bad kissing with people with braces and all of that other teenage puberty stuff? It's a really good question. I look forward to you getting to the bottom of it. Thank you again for uh talking to me today, Caitlin. Uh, I'm Annie Burke, and this is the New Books Network, New Books and Film.